Ag State of Mind, Episode 96. Welcome to Ag State of Mind, a podcast that examines the stresses affecting producers of agriculture and how to alleviate these stresses and improve farmers' lives. In this podcast, we discuss openly the mental health crisis that is occurring in the agricultural community and what we can do to help turn it around. Now here's your host, Jason Meadows. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Ag State of Mind podcast, a proud member of the Global Ag Network. I am your host, Jason Meadows. Today, we kick off August just a little bit different with a two-part interview with my friend Michael DeSaw of the Vets and Ag podcast. Uh, in part one, which is today, we talk about Mike's beginnings, how he did not grow up in agriculture, but how his interest was piqued while studying at Texas A&M. Uh, then we chat about his military career and then how the lessons learned from service are so applicable to agriculture and the lifestyle within. Uh, next week, we go a little deeper into this where it turns into almost an impromptu interview where Mike turns around and is interviewing me. I think that's something that uh, us podcast hosts tend to do when we are on other podcasts is ask questions. And uh, it was really cool because there's some things that came out and you'll you'll find this out next week. There's some things that came out that I realized that I had not shared on this particular, on, on my own podcast. I'd studied, I'd shared it on other people's podcasts, but not this one. So uh, it was a really cool opportunity. Mike does an incredible work and I think we will definitely talk to him again after this uh, two-part series. So check out this week, share it with your friends, and then be sure to tune in next week where we go a little bit in depth. So uh, find all things Mike at agdconsultant.com. And here we go with the first part of this interview with Michael DeSaw of the Vets and Ag podcast. Michael DeSaw, welcome to the Ag State of Mind podcast, friend. It's been a long time coming. I know we've been trying to get this on the schedule for a number of weeks, but I really appreciate you having me, Jason. I'm excited to be here. You know, that's the, and I, I've said this, I can't count the number of times I've started a podcast like this, but like, <laughs> that's the great thing about ag podcasts are people understand, you know, if something happens, something goes on, you know, we were talking before we recorded, we we're both having our woes in the hayfield this, right. uh, this summer. And uh, the great thing about it is you and I, we understand one another and we are more than happy to uh, oblige when, when things come up. <laughs> That's an interesting point. I've never heard that kind of connection between recognizing the need for adaptability and agriculture mm-hmm. and having it kind of relate to just everyday life and, and the podcast like this. So that's interesting that you mentioned that, that, and maybe it's just subconscious at this point. Maybe we just sort of intuitively recognize that these things happen in the profession and you just kind of be flexible with it. You know, no one has any hurt feelings. Nobody is, you know, throwing schedules against the wall or rearranging everything. You just sort of adapt to it. I don't think there's a lot of professions that you can have that kind of flexibility. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And I believe it was my friend Caroline Sick. She also, she has the Farm Story podcast and her and I were recording and we had similar things come up 
you know, where things were adaptability was, was key. You know, we had to change the schedule around a little bit, but Mm -hmm. you know, we were both okay because we're both farm kids and we both have cattle and we both know what, you know, the kind of things that can go on. And, you know, there's, cow doesn't care if you have a podcast scheduled and she's ready to, if she has to be, have a calf pulled, or, right. Uh, the baler breaks down or whatever it may be. I mean, things just happen, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's a great thing about, about people in rural life in agriculture. There's, you know, it, it's great if we can stick to a schedule, but we know that that's not always the case. Yeah. And it's something that, that you kind of train into, right. Or that you kind of, work into based on your community and your environment and your profession. It's something that may seem very unusual. You know, me coming from a military background where a lot of things are, are somewhat lockstep and yeah, that there's not a lot of room for innovation, but oftentimes in much the same way that the cow doesn't care if you have a podcast scheduled and she needs some help, the enemy doesn't care either right? That you had something else planned that day, or you planned to go a different direction than what, than what he intended and you respond to it. It's just, that's why I think there's so many similarities between these two professions. And that's kind of, that's kind of the premise of your podcast. And that's a great segue into kind of talking about you and what you do and where you came from and how you ended up where you are. So kind of tell us the story of where you started and where you ended up. Oh, it's a bit of a, a windy road, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try. I, I didn't grow up as a farm kid. I grew up in the suburbs in San Antonio. I'm, I'm also a twin brother. Agriculture was never really part of our lives growing up. We always had a backyard garden, but uh, you know, that was really kind of the extent of it. I picked it up really first in, at Texas A&M. And um, I had started as a mechanical engineer, and it just didn't feel the way that I thought it was going to feel. And because there's such an agricultural influence at the university that I moved over into ag engineering. But I was on scholarship with the Marine Corps. So they paid for school. I owed them some time and service following. And so when I graduated in 2007, I took a bit of a victory lap. So it was four and a half years. But I uh, spent the next seven years in the Marine Corps uh, on the infantry side of things. I did some time in Central America, particularly Haiti, after the 2008 earthquake. I did some training with some foreign forces in uh, in Jordan and parts of Eastern Africa. Was home for about a year after that deployment, and then deployed again to Afghanistan in 2010. Uh, and in that position, I was really the sort of second in command for the entire company, which was about 250 Marines, sailors. Uh, We had some Department of State and other folks that were attached to us. But our our area that we were responsible for was pretty large. Uh, It used to be controlled by about 2,000 Marines and sailors. And we came in with a company of about 250. uh, And I was the second in command of that. And really, my responsibility in that particular deployment was everything and anything related to keeping that unit functioning from uh, logistics to we had about $40 million worth of gear that we were responsible for across you know, at one point fifteen different positions. Uh, we were working with both the police, the Afghan police and the Afghan army. 
from the enemy situation to developing an intelligence picture to lots of the technology components that supported the pieces of equipment that we were using, any and everything, and you name it, that was kind of where my bucket fell into. Uh, but I learned a tremendous amount, was, was tried and tested, but was very fortunate enough to bring everybody home just before Christmas of, uh, uh, of that year. I spent my last two years teaching at, it's called the basic school, but it's where every Marine officer, regardless of what their job will be, spends their first six months. You teach them everything and anything they would need to know uh, to support the Marine Corps infantry. So I did that for about a year, and then I got selected to teach at the infantry officers course, which is a more specific infantry tactics focused school. At its core, it's about leadership, though. It's about how to identify it, how to evaluate it, uh, how to train people in it, how to test it, lots of intentional uncertainty, et cetera. So I did that for about a year. Before I left in the summer of 2014, my wife and I felt like we were being kind of called to walk a different path, one that was maybe more entrepreneurial in nature. I had always thought that prior to joining, I was going to spend 20 years and it was going to be a career, but it just it didn't quite feel that way at that point. And so we started to look at what else we could do. It also just so happened that at that point in our lives, we were looking to diversify from an investment perspective mm -hmm. outside of the US. We knew we wanted something that was tangible, something that was uncorrelated to the more traditional markets. Uh, we wanted something that uh, had a generally appreciative trend to it over the course of its historical existence as an asset class. And we, we fell into agriculture, uh, particularly farmland as that asset class that met those needs for us. But since one of the criteria that we had was outside the US, we started to look. And we spent about a year looking at all parts of the world that could support increased population demands and the secondary effects of the food supply, uh, arable land, ample water. And what we kept coming up to was the region uh, of Latin America, so Central and South, as a geographic area that could meet a lot of these trends. And so we said, this looks interesting, but let's go see it for ourselves. And in the early part of 2015, my wife Katie and I and our three boys, who at the time were fairly young, uh, four, two, and six months, uh, we basically set off on what would probably best be described as a six-month, six-country due diligence trip down into Latin America. So we spent some time in Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and then Panama before coming back in um, the latter part of the summer of that same year. We looked at probably uh, over a hundred different ag assets for investment across the value chain, row crop, permanent crop, livestock, uh, some value added processing, some specialty crops, et cetera. We ultimately did invest in a mixed ag project in the Southern part of Argentina which we still manage today through a local family and our own family. And, you know, really the other part of, there was two other parts to that trip. It was to lay the groundwork for the consulting company that I started shortly after we got home in 2016, uh, AGD Consulting. But it was also to show the boys that there was more to what, there was more to the world than what was directly in front of them and what they had experienced up to that point in their lives. There were different cultures, there were different people, there were different concerns, there were different impacts that, that 
were affecting different parts of the world, et cetera. So we wanted to expose them to some of that. Katie and I have always been lovers of travelers, you know, throughout our, our young adult and, and mid, mid adult lives, so to speak. But you know, really that's, that's what that trip was for and um, have been running that consulting company since then. You know, the, the firm itself is a, it's a strategic advisory firm that operates primarily within the food, uh, ag tech, and investment parts of the value chain. Clientele typically include a variety of different investors, uh, retail, high net worth, private equity, uh, some debt. Uh, we also work a lot with ag technology startup companies and mid-sized companies. We work with producers and growers. And we do that through a series of services that are probably best described as independent due diligence for the investor community, market access, business and product development. We help with strategic partnership. And through our own organic network, we work a lot in, um, in the access to capital space. So our network tends to be more early stage, seed, series A. But we do have a very strong partnership with a group out of the Connecticut area that works a lot with uh, more agribusiness type transactions of and for institutional investors and very heavily within the emerging markets in particular Latin America. So that's, I mean, that's a bit about how we got to where we are. There's the whole podcast element of it that I can talk through if that's interesting, but let me stop there and just uh, see what any questions or thoughts there may be. I know that was a lot. It, it, it is. No, it's fine. Um, it is a lot, but it's, but it's, it's, it's incredible how you went from, you know, a kid living. And it's always, it, it's fascinating to me when someone from outside of agriculture takes an interest in it. And obviously you took an interest in it because of being at Texas A&M, which you're probably going to hate me right now. I'm not sure we'll stay friends after this. I'm actually wearing a TCU shirt right now. Uh, my apologies. <laughs> my niece is. I, my, can, I, I don't see that right now, so we can overlook that at the moment. <laughs> my niece actually attends TCU. She's on the there equestrian team there. So, uh, Hey, of it, all the things to be involved in at a university like that, that of course. off to it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, I mean, it's incredible to me and something that I was totally foreign to me until I started this podcast and to talk to so many people who came to agriculture from the outside. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's great because it provides great perspective and it provides, you know, this much needed fresh set of eyes on things. But then you went to the military route and obviously Thank you for your service to our country. Um, I, I don't know. Do you, I don't know if you get tired of hearing that or not, um, or if it's uh, sometimes feels like it's disingenuine. But I, I truly mean that because that's something that I did not do. But I'm always in. I'm always thankful, and I always want to make sure I think that's for their service of our country. Because uh, without that, we wouldn't have what we have. So I'm so thankful for you for that. Um, I appreciate that. You could tell but, when it's genuine. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. But so, but you found this way to kind of put it all together and you kind of taught, brought all the things that you were passionate about, agriculture, military, travel, 
and kind of made that into one and, and where you have your consulting firm and then you talk and then you do so much work with vets uh, and agriculture and involved in agriculture. And I think that is so great whenever you can combine passions like that and make a living out of doing it. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I applaud you for that because I'm sure it took a lot of work to get there. Yeah. And I, th- I think I appreciate those, those, those kind words. Uh, I don't know how put together it, it, it feels sometimes, but it's certainly something that is a passion and it, it is certainly something that gives me and I think it gives our family a sense of purpose. And when I talk to the veteran community in, you know, prior to the podcast, but also, you know, in the, in the course of those discussions, so much of what they lack, I think, after they transition is the same sense of purpose and sacrifice for a greater good that they experienced in the military. And when they depart from that point in their lives and they hang up their uniforms, that need doesn't go away, Mm. right? It's still a part of who you are, whether that was trained into you or whether that's always been a part of who you are, it's still there. So a lot of the, a lot of the conversations I, I hear tend to be about that search for that same purpose. And that doesn't mean that the search is for naught, right? Because in a lot of those instances, they find out what they don't want to do, right? Maybe they did logistics in the military or they were in, in motor, motor transport and they think that that's what they need to do or what they want to do in the private sector. And they go and, and do that. And it does it for them or it doesn't. In many cases, it doesn't. But what they find whenever they and however they eventually stumble into agriculture is the same sense of purpose again, right? It's the same greater good. And it's not, so you talked about thanking veterans for their service and it's genuine. I can tell from you, often when you, when you get that, you, the veteran doesn't need or generally want a comfortable life, right? They don't want empathy. They want, they want to be challenged again in the same ways that they were in the service, right? So I had, I had Rachel Pettit on the other day, who is the fellowship grant manager for the Farmer Veteran Coalition out of California. Uh, they do a ton of work with about 30,000 plus members across the country that are veteran farmers, exactly as their name annotates. And what she, she did not come from a military background. She wasn't a veteran. And when I was asking her what was one of the biggest things that was a surprise and that was a challenge to you when you started to work with the veteran community was that she said, I thought that they wanted some comfort when they got out, but really they wanted things to look similar as they transitioned. She said it wasn't about the birds and the songs. It wasn't about the warm soil and the sun on your shoulders. She said it was about the grit. It was about the early mornings. It was about the long days and the constant complex problem solving. Those were the things that were attractive to the veteran that agriculture brings on a day-to-day basis. And I've heard that kind of sentiment in a lot of different ways. And I'm just talking about production agriculture here. There's lots of other elements that have similar components, but just that one in particular was interesting hearing from somebody who 
that wasn't sort of a natural inclination that didn't have that military service background to come to that same realization, uh, I thought was really, it was really impactful for me. And there are so many similarities between these two environments, agriculture and military, right? Yeah. They, they require constant adaptability. There are complex problems to solve. You have to be fluid to ever-changing situations. There are lots of things that impact the environment and your decision-making that are outside of your control. Um, often there is a very high decentralization that you have to execute in. We talked about that prior to recording with your son mm -hmm. running the baler. Mm -hmm. you know, there are all these different instances where these two professions and, and environments overlap and have a lot of similarities. And the, the skill sets, whether the veteran knows it or not, that they bring from operating in those environments, I think is very unique in which to solve problems that arise in the agricultural community. And I think those set of intangible, soft, however you want to define these set of skills, often goes overlooked. And the whole goal of the Vets and Ag podcast is to shed light on these stories, is to shed light on these opportunities. It's to tease out from the veteran the stories that they have, because that's often the way they communicate. So that the agribusiness, the deers, the cargoes, the tractor supplies, the Nestle's, all these groups that you know, may or may not have veteran hiring programs, they can hear what these veterans have done and what it means to an organization like that. And maybe give a second thought to bring a vet on board where they hadn't beforehand. Um, so it was just when you were describing that earlier, those two thoughts came to mind. It's really interesting to me because obviously what you say makes sense about the similarities. Um, I think what I think what like what what are the hard realization for me is is you know so many things are when you're in the military are done while you uh, while you're or, or or for in my mind this is how I think of it, it while you're facing a possible life mm -hmm. or death situation you know so i mean that's i think the thing that like where i my mind goes but if you really peel that layer back of it and you say constant adaptability the fluidity of the situation things outside of your control decentralization trying to delegate tasks trying there being a sort of chain of command no matter how small or long that chain of command is it's still there yeah, all those components to that are so vital to the military are just as vital to agriculture. And I never really made that connection until you have kind of been describing this and listening to your podcast and kind of talking about the thing, thinking about the things that you're talking about. And that's, and I think that's why back in the day, um, and I'm going to go back a couple of generations here. My grandfather, who was in stationed in Hawaii during World War II, I think so many from that generation got into agriculture because of the similarity in the structure of the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. 
and the, and the and the familiar i don't want to say comfort because comfort's not the right word yeah, the yeah. familiarity the at, how at home it felt for them because of the similarities of the situations victory gardens were a real thing back then at that point i mean it was about the unification of the country to support an effort and that meant in a lot of ways producing food for these kinds of groups but this connection between military service and agriculture goes back even further, I think. And, and there's one instance that sticks out in my mind. I had Benjamin Martin on the show who was, uh, he was a former Amtracker, so uh, armored amphibious personnel carrier. He was an enlisted Marine. And he now runs a winery in the Willamette Valley, uh, Dauntless Wines. And uh, he was just, he's a historian kind of, I think, in another life that he happens to combine into what he does in his day job, but he was describing the Roman legionnaires and how when they would leave service, they would go back to, they were, they were actually given tracts of land to farm and to produce. And, you know, how exactly that connection was established. And if it goes back even further, I'm not sure, but it just makes sense, right? That service member has this imbued sense of uh, being a part of something bigger and the need to serve and, and produce. That's a perfect profession, right? But also to the extent that that service member or veteran may be struggling with issues from their time in the service, wh wherever and whatever those may be, there are actual physiological benefits that occur in the human body when it interacts with the soil mm, mm -hmm. that have positive impacts on mental health. Mm. And, you know, somebody smarter than me, that's actually a, a scientist can opine on that. But I know that there is a biological relationship between those two. My other point is that that relationship between military service and agriculture doesn't have to just stop at the farm, mm -hmm. right? right? It can, it can extend into agripreneurship, into technology, into innovation. It can extend into agribusiness. So long as in whatever place that veteran finds themselves, that they have that same sense of purpose that they had in a military and I mean, I, I just, there's, there's too many similarities, I think, to kind of continue to let one aspect of ag be the only thing we talk about for the veteran community. Yeah, yeah, because, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit that's, uh, I do have a narrow, I was brought up with a narrow lens view of what agriculture is, because so of, was I. Yeah, because of, well, I mean, for me, it was because how I was involved. I mean, my dad was a cow calf operator. That's pretty much all we have in this part of the country. Yeah. I mean, there's row crops to the north, but I mean, in my direct every day, it's cow calf. And that's really about all I think about. Um, uh, still, I mean, that's still the way it is. And if I didn't have the podcast, I would still be in that frame of mind. And I think many mm. people do just get involved in their bubble, whatever their bubble is. And they feel, uh, because it does feel comfortable and you don't necessarily even know that there's something more outside of it. But I mean, I found once I got outside of that, 
and understood what the big, and I still have just an inkling of what the big idea is, but like my horizons have been broadened so much by finding out how many layers there are to this agriculture industry. And, uh, and yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right that vets have something to offer throughout the industry, throughout all, all sectors and ways of, of business being done. And, uh, there's something, something for everybody. And you're, and it's like you say, there's too much of a direct correlation of mm-hmm. what, of the work that needs to be done for them not to be involved. It's such a complicated profession though, in, in whatever aspect you specialize in, whether it's cow calf or permanent crop, or you're a new technology company in order to excel, you've got to have your nose to the grindstone. Right, you have to be paying attention to all of the different environmental cues. You have to be looking at the second and third order effects of your actions. It's it's hard mm. to poke your head up sometimes and see what else is out there and how those other things out there may be influencing what is what it is that you're doing or how what you're doing may be influencing things uh, down the value chain, so to speak. So, I mean, it certainly is an understandable position to, to feel in. But that's why I think these kinds of conversations and, and podcasts like yours that kind of give people pause to think about this relationship between uh, mental health and the agricultural community and ag and vets. I mean, the only way that, I mean, to, to kind of counter, not bad speech, but to counter limited speech is just with more speech or better speech. And I think that the pod, podcast medium is a way in which you can do that. Yeah, because it's like having real conversations. You know what I mean? Right. There's so much, so like little that's real anymore, as, <laughs> uh, especially that's distributed to the masses. I mean, you know, take one, whatever side of the aisle you are, take one just a quick look at Fox news or CNN or MSNBC. And you know, it's not real talk. It is not real talk. No matter what, what's being said, it's, it's fabricated. It's, there's not a whole lot of real information there, but when you have real conversations like this, where it's two people who are passionate about something discussing an issue, yeah, that's really, really valuable. And then people can really get into something there and really kind of uh, peel back the layers of the onion there and understand a little bit more about what's happening, no matter how simple or complex it is. Right. I'm always curious as to the Genesis story for different podcasts and how they kind of got started. But you, you were, so I'm curious as to, as to yours, but if I may, just a quick comment on one of the points you made. I mean, when you think, when you talk about, excuse me, natural conversations happening, I mean, these are the conversation you and I are having now is one that we would have whether anybody was listening or not. Right, right. And I think the, the, the genuineness of those conversations is what is missing in a lot of the public narrative and discussions on the major news channels and outlets that you hear today. And because there's so many of these starting, I think I heard the number was something like 60 to 70,000 new 
podcasts are launched in a very short period of time. I want to say yeah. it was the day or the week. I mean, it, it's a tremendous amount. You can amount. say a number and it's probably already out of date. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> yeah, how right. fast it's evolving. But I mean, the, these kinds of conversations are what is necessary to elevate discussions that you're passionate about or that are important to you. And if somebody that is interested, they'll find it or they'll mm -hmm. tune into it. And if it's valuable to hang around, if it's not, they may go search for that somewhere else, but you never really know uh, until you try. And the kinds of conversations I was having on a day-to-day -day basis anyway, were just so fascinating with what's happening in the technology space with, with ag today. And on a, you know, a somewhat unintentional basis, my veteran uh, you know, passed and that community would kind of intersect. But I said, wait a minute, there's, there's something that can be done here. And if we're already having these incredible conversations, why not just hit the record button and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of put it together and see if anybody listens. And that's kind of where we're at right now with our show. But I'm curious as to sort of what your Genesis story was with the Ag State of Mind. So, and thanks for listening to Ag State of Mind. We hope this episode has encouraged you. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag State of Mind. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify so you never miss an episode. See you next week.